Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode ventures down Broadway to explore one of musical theatre's most popular and celebrated productions of all time, South Pacific. Though the writers faced their share of challenges, they came to transform Broadway from a place of whimsy to one of true artistry. Broadway producer Leland Hayward sits in his office. He's waiting for the author James A. Michener to arrive so they can discuss the rights to Michener's World War II novel, Tales of the South Pacific. The book won last year's Pulitzer Prize for fiction, so Hayward knows Michener's no fool. Even so, he's planning on lowballing the author. When Michener arrives, Hayward offers him a measly $500 to hand over all the rights. He acts like it's a good deal, but Michener can smell a rat. He knows how much money Hayward has and how much he stands to make from a musical adaptation of his novel. The war is just four years finished, and the public wants stories about its adventure and bravery. A World War II musical could make a fortune. In one of the most shrewd business decisions of his life, and one of the shrewdest in Broadway musical history, Michener rejects Hayward's paltry sum. He counteroffers, asking for 1% of the gross receipts. Hayward, knowing he needs the author on board, reluctantly agrees. The adaptation of Michener's novel, known simply as South Pacific, premieres in 1949 and goes on to make millions. This is not the only condition Hayward has had to concede to in order to get this project off the ground. The men he's employed to write the musical are the most famous men in the business, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. Musical director and historian Mark Robinson shares his thoughts on the famous duo. You know what you know what is coming from Hammerstein, and you know what is coming from Rogers. Rogers writes beautiful melodies, beautiful uh, waltzes, and and with Hammerstein really began to probe a part of himself that I don't think he had quite done so much with when he was working with Lorenz Hart. He begins, to, you know, to find ways through his music to tell the story in a in a, deep, in a deeper way, where the the music is really kind of underscoring what the character is going through, you know, emotion, you know, and, and you know, and, and it becomes, you know, very clear in, you know, in Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, The King and I, The Sound of Music, that, you know, he really can, uh, you know, emotionally grab onto what Hammerstein is trying to, to say lyrically, and, and they pair so beautifully, you know, I mean, they really do. I mean, Hammerstein, yes, he is a bit of a... Hallmark card lyricist in some ways, you know, with you know these like things like songs like "You'll Never Walk Alone," like you know, "Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown." You know, it feels like you know it could be in a greeting card, but it also really touched people, and it got into you know, paired with the plot of what was going on in the musical Carousel, really affected people, and and I think that Hammerstein is incredibly underrated for his contribution to to lyrics. You know, he's, he he say everybody thinks of him as successful, but people don't necessarily really always appreciate how groundbreaking he was and but how he gave us groundbreaking in a palatable accessible way that felt familiar but still forced us to think in order to convince rogers and hammerstein to do the project hayward reluctantly gives them complete creative control of the adaptation and the music 
Alongside his director, Joshua Logan, Hayward manages to get Rogers to read Michener's novel, but Rogers is initially uninterested. He's worried any musical set in the South Pacific will need to rely too heavily on ukuleles and guitars, instruments he profoundly dislikes. After Hammerstein reads the book, however, he manages to convince his writing partner that the project might actually be worthwhile, but they'll need to rework the story considerably and turn it into something of their own. They tell Hayward they'll do the project, but only if they can do it their way, without restraint. Again, Hayward knows he needs these men on board. He accepts. After all the writers are finally happy, Michener tells Rogers not to worry about the ukuleles. He never heard any during his time in the South Pacific. The only instrument he ever heard the indigenous people play were empty barrels of gasoline drummed with clubs. Tales of the South Pacific is a collection of short stories Michener wrote based on his wartime experiences when he was stationed on the island of Espiritu Santo in Vanuatu as a lieutenant commander in the US Navy. The stories are largely inspired by observations and anecdotes Michener encountered during his posting, stories which focus on the interactions between American service members and a mixture of colonial, immigrant and indigenous characters. While the topics of race and racial differences do feature in the book, they are far from the collection's primary themes. But to Rogers and Hammerstein, the potential for a racially charged epic set against the backdrop of war quickly emerges and soon becomes their main focus. Racial tensions and injustice are running rampant throughout American society. They want to create a musical that sends a strong, progressive message that denounces racism. But Broadway is a happy-go-lucky place, an art form of toe-tapping escapism. Broadway is the last place people will expect to see some hard-hitting message about society and politics. And that's precisely Rogers and Hammerstein's point. They want to shake things up, do something nobody has ever done before, grab people by surprise and make a difference. The creative duo set to work on the plot. Michener's collection of 19 short stories all stand independently, all cast against the background of an upcoming American invasion of a nearby island held by the Japanese. Unlike the book, however, Rogers and Hammerstein know the musical will need a greater overall narrative in order to be a coherent, standalone piece. In the text, various characters reappear in different capacities in different stories. So Hammerstein decides to merge characters and stitch together plot lines in order to create a plot that's capable of exploring the themes he and Rogers want to challenge audiences with. It's no easy task. Hammerstein ends up spending months analysing and juggling the 19 stories, seeing which ones he can chop and change, which ones he can attach to others, driving himself a little bit crazy in the process. Eventually, though, he creates something usable. The Plot to South Pacific, one of the most successful shows in Broadway history. Hammerstein's reworked storyline focuses on the romance between the characters Nellie and Emile, who appear in the short story Our Heroine. Another love story emerges in Hammerstein's frantic rewrite, that of Cable and Liat, from the Fodola short story. Broadway tradition has a long-established convention in which any play with two romances presents one of them as serious and the other as comedic. But Hammerstein sees this as an opportunity to rewrite the game. 
Not only does he make both romances serious, he focuses them on the uncomfortable issues of racial prejudice. Themes of racial intermarriage and mixed-race children become deeply woven into the story. Other love interests that are important in the book are either reduced to minor characters or cut completely. Director Joshua Logan, eager to get his hands on the script and begin work, is concerned by how much Hammerstein is struggling. Months into the project, and Hammerstein has only finished one scene. He's barely drafted a brief outline. Only a handful of lyrics have been penned. Moreover, Hammerstein doesn't know a thing about the military. He's a Broadway powerhouse, but he's no soldier. Fortunately, Logan is an ex-serviceman, and he's able to give his struggling writer some assistance. But this just makes Hammerstein dependent on Logan for plot advice, dialogue editing, and lyric ideas. The writing process becomes even slower. Without Logan's help, the musical is unlikely to get off the ground. By contrast to Hammerstein's creative difficulties in figuring out the script, Rogers is writing the music without a care in the world. He writes one of the songs, Happy Talk, in just 20 minutes. He writes another, Bali High, even faster. He sits down with a hot cup of coffee, begins writing the song, and by the time he's finished composing it, his coffee is still hot. Eventually, Hammerstein nails the script. The play opens with two half-Polynesian children, Ingana and Jerome, playing together. Nellie Forbush, a nurse in the US Navy from Little Rock, Arkansas, has fallen in love with Émile de Beck, a middle-aged French plantation owner, even though she barely knows him. In the song Some Enchanted Evening, Some Enchanted Émile expresses his love for Nellie. He also reveals to the audience that the mixed-race children, Ngana and Jerome, are his, something Nellie is unaware of. Meanwhile, bored American sailors brood about there being no women to socialise with. The only civilian woman on the island is a sassy middle-aged Tonkinese grass skirt vendor nicknamed Bloody Mary. The song There's Nothing Like a Dame summarises the men's feelings. A US Marine named Cable then arrives, en route to a dangerous espionage mission on a nearby Japanese-held island. Bloody Mary tells Cable he should visit Bali High, singing the song that Rogers wrote over a cup of coffee. Meanwhile, Cable's officers decide to ask Emil to be a mission guide, since he used to live on the Japanese-held island. Approaching Nellie, they ask about Emil's past and learn that he might have committed a murder. Cable's officers express doubt that Emil is a trustworthy man, something which Nellie herself begins to wonder. Nellie tells her fellow nurses that she's going to dump him, singing, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. However, when Emil returns home, he invites her to a party, declares his love for her, and asks her to marry him. She questions him about his past, and he talks passionately about freedom and equality. He tells her how he fled France after standing up to a bully who accidentally died during their ensuing fight. In a complete 180, Nellie accepts Emile's proposal and sings, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. Cable's officers decide to go ahead with Emile as the guide, but Emile refuses to help. Cable is forced to go on leave until another guide can be found and uses his downtime to visit Bali High. 
On the island, Bloody Mary introduces Cable to her daughter, Liette, believing her daughter's only hope for a better life is to marry an American. Cable and Liette can only communicate in broken French, but they immediately fall in love nonetheless. Meanwhile, as Emile and Nellie celebrate their new engagement with their friends, Emile tells Nellie that the two mixed-race children, Ngana and Jerome, are his children by his first wife, a Polynesian woman. Nellie's racism comes to the surface and she breaks off the engagement. A malaria epidemic ravages Bali High. Having visited the island often to see Liat, Cable falls ill, but escapes hospital to be with his love. Bloody Mary is delighted that her daughter has found love and encourages the couple to get married. Unfortunately, Cable tells them that his family would never allow him to marry a dark-skinned girl. Heartbroken, Bloody Mary tells Cable that Liat's only hope for a better life now is to marry an old French plantation owner. Meanwhile, Emile begs Nellie to reconsider their engagement, but her racial prejudice runs too deep. Emile is flabbergasted by such pointless racist beliefs. He asks Cable why he and Nellie hold such terrible views on race. Cable, filled with self-loathing, says... It's not something you're born with. Cable then sings the most controversial song in the entire production, a piece that receives widespread praise and condemnation by critics and the public for its confronting appearance on the happy-go-lucky setting of a Broadway musical stage. The song is called You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. You've got to be carefully taught and describes how racism is an unnatural belief system that has to be ingrained into children at a young age. Mark Robinson discusses the significance of the song. It, it really is the, you know, the moment the, the show all hinges upon. It's, it's, it's that revelation of what racism means and, and where it comes from and how it started. And, and to show a song, if you listen to it today, it is just as viscerally effective as it was back in 19, the 1940s, you know, it, it wasn't the big hit to come out of the show. The big hit was Some Enchanted Evening was the was the real big hit of the show, and that got loads of radio play and recordings. But it was, you've got to be carefully taught, that really hit the message home. And I think most historians of musical theater, when looking back, would say that that song is probably one of the important landmarks, benchmarks of musical theater history and how storytelling evolved and changed to be more serious, more serious, more introspective, you know, digging deeper. For Rogers and Hammerstein, this part of the musical represents the whole motivation for doing the production in the first place. Nervously, Hayward and Logan voice their concerns. But Rogers and Hammerstein hold steady and stubbornly defend this moment in the musical, saying that the song is going to stay in even if it means the production is a failure. But against the backdrop of the Cold War, with anti-communist sentiment running high, expressing these views of racial equality is seen by many as a threat to the ideals of the American way of life. When the show tours the southern US, it prompts lawmakers in Georgia to introduce a bill that outlaws any entertainment containing what it considers an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow. After singing the song, Cable vows not to return to America if he survives the war, 
saying everything he wants in life is found in these islands with Liette. Meanwhile, depressed that Nellie's heart won't budge on the issue of race, Emile decides to risk his life and help Cable's mission after all. Though the mission is successful, Cable is killed. Emile narrowly escapes, but everyone assumes he's dead too. When Nellie learns of these events, she realises how foolish her prejudices are. Bloody Mary and Liat come to Nellie, asking where Cable is. And Liat is heartbroken once more to learn that Cable has died. Nellie comforts Liat by telling her that he was a brave hero. With Emil gone, Nellie decides to look after his children in Ghana and Jerome, and she soon comes to love them. The musical ends on a happily ever after note when Emil returns alive and well to discover Nellie has overcome her prejudices. When the production first opens on Broadway in 1949, it amasses a weekly gross of over $50,000. Its original run will end up lasting for nearly 2,000 performances. The national tour begins in 1950, and it makes over $1.5 million in profit. Michener's earlier refusal to accept Hayward's $500 payout for the rights to his book pays him dividends. The cultural impact of the musical is immediate and immense, with conversations on race being inspired across the country as the musical's songs play from coast to coast over the airwaves. More than just a popular musical with catchy songs, South Pacific's bold use of the Broadway stage to deliver a politically charged message during an intensely sensitive moment in American history makes it a transformative and landmark piece of American entertainment culture. Mark Robinson shares his thoughts on what made South Pacific so popular. First of all, Rodgers and Hammerstein have had two big hits in one show that just made a little money called Allegro. South Pacific was sort of a return to what people expected from Rodgers and Hammerstein. Well, Rodgers and Hammerstein's name alone usually make sure that a show was paid for well before it even opened because there was such an advanced sale by this time on a Rodgers and Hammerstein show. Other reason why this show is so popular is it opens in 1949 and it takes place during World War II. World War II hasn't been over for very long. Uh, so people who, who you know fought in the war, who believed in its message, who had experienced you know being thrown into other cultures and stuff, I think really related to this show. I think this show really was practically a current event, you know, event, you know, just a few years later. It's it's so close that so much of it I think was still very uh, raw for audience members and I, I think poignant. Now. You know, the servicemen who were coming back from the war were, you know, some of the big audiences of South South Pacific. You know, you, you've got these people who, who had served, and this show became kind of a, I think, sort of a, 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 tribute, a tribute to that experience. Even though the show itself doesn't paint that experience as all that musical theatery, if that makes sense to you. It's not that, you know, that happy ever after show. It's, it, it, it deals with complicated issues. And the complicated issues it's dealing with are race and our preconceived notions about race, how Americans being put in another culture, learning, learning about people from other cultures and races and not knowing how to process it because 
they've grown up with one thing. To me, the, the most important song Rodgers and Hammerstein ever wrote, which is um, carefully taught, or you've got to be carefully taught, depending on who you speak to and what, what, what they'll call the title. And what is so amazing about this, this uh, song is that it blatantly takes on racism and Lieutenant Cable sings about how he's learned to have the thoughts he has about cultures that he doesn't understand. And the lyrics, you know, the lyrics are, you know, uh, you've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made, people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. And then later, you've got to be taught before it's too late, before you're six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. Now, n n no show really had, 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 got, had dug, dug this far into probing our own racism. It had dealt with race, shows had dealt with racism, but boy, South Pacific somehow seemed to hit it home and with this song. And it's probably that song alone is the reason why the musical won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. It was it was a musical that was was cutting edge for its day. The journey towards racial equality is far from over. But Rogers and Hammerstein's bravery encourages other American entertainers, artists, and media personalities to follow suit. The musical duo risk being branded communists. They risk being blacklisted and ruined, but they do it anyway, helping to pave the way for others to follow in the ongoing march towards progress. South Pacific's message of racial equality sees its popularity continue into the 21st century, where sadly such a message is still needed. However, serious modern critiques of the presentation of race begin emerging a sign that the musical was written 70-some years ago. In a 2008 Huffington Post piece, it's alleged that the musical takes a typically Orientalist and Western-centric view of the world, stereotyping exotic characters and consigning them to the background, where they barely speak, but quickly sleep with white men. Despite these criticisms, however, productions continue to be performed all around the world. Mark Robinson explains why the musical is still relevant today. Today's terms, people look back at it and go, well, you know, some of the portrayals of the minorities in the show are a little bit stereotyped. But in its day, the fact that it was even going there made it, made it so important. So yes, very much still relevant. But again, as I said, the presentation of, of the race in it uh, I, I think if it's handled carefully in, in how it's staged and, and, and doesn't try to go for the stereotypes that I think the original production did, I think you can still get away with South Pacific and have it be a very meaningful, powerful show. Mark also explains why Billy Joel mentions South Pacific in We Didn't Start the Fire. It was one of those important things along the way that really did force us to look at ourselves and maybe do a little judging of who we were. And if you're going to look at, you know, how this fire has burned over over the years and all of the problems that the world is dealing with, you know, South, South Pacific forced us to look at it. it, it it's, it's an ideal choice to put in the song of, you know, you know, if, if you're, especially if you're looking for a, a variety of topics and people to talk about, movies, stories, whatever, you know, to, to draw from, to tell, you know, the arc of this song, South Pacific, is really just beginning to open up the door for, for having that discussion. At the time of his death in 1979, Richard Rogers is credited with writing more than 900 songs across 43 musicals. 
He has also become the first person to win one of each of the top four American Entertainment Awards, a Tony for theatre, an Oscar for film, a Grammy for music, and an Emmy for television. There's no doubt he and his partner Oscar Hammerstein deserve their reputation as powerhouses of composition. Most significantly, the pair are celebrated for making Broadway musicals more than just fluffy entertainment, giving them a maturity of storytelling that endures to this day. Broadway became more than just a place to escape, it became a place to educate. In short, they gave musicals meaning. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. Special thanks to our guest speaker, musical director and historian, Mark Robinson. To Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, David Coyle. The music playing in this episode was You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, sung by William Tabbert, and Some Enchanted Evening, sung by Rossano Brazzi. Composers of both songs are Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song by discussing the life and career of Walter Winchell, the columnist, radio news commentator and TV host who built an audience of 50 million Americans. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods on Instagram and Facebook or you can visit our website www.nzpods.com Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners so please share your thoughts We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going Thanks again for listening and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning <laughs>